we are this morning getting to start a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. So if you guys have a Bible, you can go ahead and pull that out. Uh, phones are acceptable as well. Do not feel any shame. If you need to download a Bible app, you might get some service in here. But we're going to be in the book of Ephesians uh, starting today. And this is really a sermon series that we're going to be in uh, for really the next four or so months. And so we're going to have this opportunity to just kind of slowly walk through what I would say is one of the kind of greatest letters that we have in, in the New Testament. It's full of encouragement. It's full of great kind of gospel truth for us to chew on uh, in the Christian life. And so as we're sort of setting up our series to the Ephesians, this letter to the Ephesians, I, I wanna take just kind of a, a, a brief moment here, even at the beginning, to, to just sort of set up, give us our bearings even for this series that we're gonna have in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and so if you'll bear with me, we kind of have two intros this morning as we kind of set up the book as a whole and then as we jump into our specific passage. So hold your place there in Ephesians. Uh, but what I wanna just kind of let us know this morning is that in this letter, in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul, he's writing primarily to, to Gentile believers, these non-Jewish believers who were in the port town of Ephesus. And Ephesus is this town in, the, in what is modern day Western Turkey. And before Paul pens this letter to the Ephesians, he has spent significant time with this church. He's helped them grow in maturity and grow in number. And this has led to them growing out even into the surrounding areas, these kind of smaller towns and villages, which is why when we come to the book of Ephesians, we see this even as what is likely what's called a circular letter. So it's this letter that Paul has written to the church at Ephesus, and he now wants for all of the churches in the area to have it read before them so that it can encourage them, it can build them up in their faith. And so the, the city of Ephesus even, just kind of getting some background on that, it was this incredibly strategic place for the gospel to take root incredibly strategic place for gospel ministry to take place. As a port town, it saw people from all over the Mediterranean world coming through its streets. And because of this, it served as kind of a major center for commerce and for the exchange of ideas. It was truly one of the, the most influential and respected cities of the day. And it was also, it was a city that was known for its pagan temples. It was a city that was known for all of these temples to former Roman emperors and to Roman gods. And, and one of these temples is even dedicated to the Roman god Artemis, who's the goddess of the moon, or who was claimed to be the goddess of the moon. And this temple there in Ephesus, it was, it was this sight to behold. It was this massive building, kind of on a scale that didn't really exist in most places in the ancient Roman world. And because of this, it's, it was even considered one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world. And I just, I even highlight this to show you that Ephesus is kind of the center for worship of pagan gods at the time. It's this center for worshiping the goddess Artemis. And we, we even see when we look in the book of Acts and we see the gospel going forth into all of these new places that as, as the gospel comes to Ephesus in particular, it causes all kinds of issues. As, as the good news, the truth of who Jesus is breaks into people's hearts here in Ephesus, it starts to upend kind of the social order in some way. In the book of Acts in chapter 19, we see that the gospel going forth is, is leading to almost a riot in the city of Ephesus. 
In, in, the, in chapter 19, all the local blacksmiths get together and they go to the town theater and they start threatening Paul and the other Christians who were really cutting into their own profits. These men who would build these shrines to Artemis for people who visited the town or even for locals who were dedicated followers of Artemis. Their, their idols are being challenged, they're being upended, which shows us that it's very apparent that the gospel was taking root in a big way in this city which really makes Paul's writing to them all the more important, what he has to say to them all the more important. And so what we're really gonna see in this series as we kind of unfold the book of Ephesians is that Paul is, he's aiming to firmly root these Gentile believers' identity. He wants to firmly root their identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows that there's a tendency for us to root our identity in other things, and so he zeroes in on this. And in chapters one through three, he's gonna lay out the miracle of the gospel. And part of that includes how it creates a community that crosses over ethnic and racial lines even. He wants to ensure that this church has a secure foundation so that there's no cracks that are gonna lead to disunity and ultimately defaming the name of Jesus. And he even talks about this as he moves into chapters four through six, which we'll see in a few weeks, where he addresses kind of the practical outworkings of the gospel. He says, here's the foundational truth. Here's how it plays out in our lives, how it plays out in the way that we live with one another in the church and how it plays out in the way that we relate to the world around us. And so we really are gonna see just how relevant this letter is for us today here at Faithful Bible Church in our current context. We're gonna see that, that God has truly established a people. He's established his church with great purpose, with great purpose, that, that we are a people who've been gathered together to really put the gospel on display for the world to see. And so with all of that kind of in our minds, this setting up of the book of Ephesians, we have the privilege to look at three through 14 in depth this morning, which is uh, just some of the, I would say some of the best words that have ever been written in all of scripture here in Ephesians 3 through 14. And so you already have your, look, your place there. We're gonna go ahead and read it and we'll dive in. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for these words. Lord, we thank you for these, these acts that you have engaged in throughout history, through redemptive history, God, that you are showing yourself to be a pursuing God, Lord. We ask this morning as we kind of marinate in this passage, Lord, that you would truly help us to see how earth-shattering these truths actually are, God. Would you help us to see how these things that you have done for us in history, Lord, should lead us to praise. That should lead us to respond to you in that way, humble on our faces, God. We ask that you would do that work in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, my, my question for you as we start out this morning is, is what, what naturally moves you to praise other people? What, what naturally moves you personally to praise other people? Maybe if you find yourself working uh, in a place where you enjoy your coworkers and you have a, a great kind of spirit about you guys, maybe you find yourself always led to naturally praise your coworkers for the job that they're doing or for the promotion that they're receiving or for just their, their friendship to you in the workplace. If you are always looking maybe to your, your spouse at home who is serving so well within the context of your family, who's always choosing to do, to do the dishes after dinner. We know that's, that's you guys, that you're the one who's supposed to be doing that, so just, just to let you know. Um, maybe it's, it's kind of that view of spousal excellence that drives you to wanna naturally praise your spouse for the way that they serve in your family. Uh, maybe uh, it's, it's uh, something a little bit more insignificant like sports. You know, maybe you're led to naturally praise your favorite team. Uh, I know tonight, Aaron and I, our teams are getting to face off LSU and Florida State, and I fully hope that next week you're able to hear praise for my team from my own lips. I feel as if I will be naturally led to that, um, but I don't want to presume too much, so I don't have to eat my words. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you're led to heap praise on your children. Uh, this one resonates deeply with me. Uh, Audrey is now approaching a year old and uh, she started walking recently and she's just taken off. She is just making these huge strides. And I'm now kind of in this position where, uh, and Ashley can attest to this, where, I mean, she, she'll take three quick steps and I'm, I'm reaching for my phone because I wanna call Usain Bolt's agent and set up a race. Like I am, I am there on the sidelines praising her for every step that she takes, encouraging her on. 
And so there's all of these things that can naturally lead us to, to praise other people. And then it leads to another question. What naturally moves you to praise God? What naturally moves you to praise God? Maybe for you, it's this current season that you and your family find yourselves in. Maybe you've recently even come to the area. Maybe you're with the military and you're finding yourself even at Fort Bragg in a a role that allows you to spend more time at home and a little bit less time away on deployments. Uh, Maybe it's, it's just a good season for your family. Your kids are at that unique age where you're seeing all this development in them and you're just enjoying it. And it leads you to kind of just praise God that he's orchestrated events in this way in your life. And maybe it's, it's the fact that you enjoy your work, that you find meaning in it, that you find significance in it, that you each day as you go to the workplace, you, you lift a praise to God and say, thank you, Lord, for providing this job that is so meaningful that I get to step into every single day. Maybe it's answered prayers, that you can look back on things that you have brought before the Lord, requests, burdens, anxieties, and you can point to tangible things in your life that, has cha- that have changed as a result of bringing those things before the Lord. And these many reasons to, to praise God, they're likely the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about what we actually bring in, in terms of praise to God. And they're very worthwhile things to praise God for. But I think this passage today, it, it reminds us that there's also this this kind of need and this call even to to praise God for the specific kind of aspects of salvation. That that there's this need, there's this call to praise God for how he has worked throughout history in salvation. This is kind of a good and a right thing for us to do on occasion and even something that we, we would hope would be just woven into kind of the fabric of our lives that that we would want to praise the Lord for all that he has done in our lives if we are Christians, all that he has done in the way of saving us from who we formerly were. And Paul is really, in in 3 through 14, he's preoccupied with this type of praise in the passage. Not, Not a vague kind of praise, you know, thanking God for travel plans or anything like this, but he really gets specific and, and he really, you see him praising God for his glorious grace. He's praising God for his glorious grace. He can't stop going on about this. He reflects on God's glorious grace and he can't keep himself from really exploding in worship. It happens at three different points even throughout this passage in 6, 12, and 14. And when uh, talking about this kind of praise to God for what he has done in salvation, we, I think, come face to face with a bit of a harsh reality when we look in the mirror. We, we come face to face with this reality that our, our hearts are very often cold to this kind of praise. We come face to face with the reality that our vision for seeing that God has done these things is sometimes darkened in our lives. We, whether by sin, whether by forgetfulness, whether by just the mundane rhythms of life, we can have this tendency uh, to, to not be brought to a place of praising God for all that he has done in salvation. We can, I think even in a sense, I know this is true in my own life and maybe it is for you too, we can seem to kind of get over God's grace in our lives. Kind of see it as less radical, see it as less life transforming than it actually is. 
And that's where this blessing in 3 through 14 comes into the picture for us. This one long sentence that's 202 words long. They wrote a little bit differently in Greek, we can see. This one long sentence, it's meant to excite our affections for Jesus Christ. It's meant to grow us in our gratitude for God until we, like Paul, find ourselves prostrate in praise before God, before our great and our gracious God. It's really a a kind of shake you awake and make sure that you're paying attention kind of passage. The, The constant question is, do you see this glory? Do you see this greatness? The awe inspiring reality of it all. And I think even as I I look at this passage, it it sort of meets three different groups of people and we will all find ourselves in one of these groups this morning. It's a passage that's a bit of a spiritual alarm clock that gets our attention if we become drowsy and dozed off. If we've kind of forgotten the miracle of God's work in Jesus Christ. It's also, it's a light switch passage for those who currently find themselves in this dark room maybe of depression and despondence. It's a a passage that comes to those who may have lost their sight of a sovereign God who sustains them and who cares deeply for them. And then thirdly, I I earnestly pray that it's also a light bulb passage. I pray that for for any of you here today who find yourself kind of under the the shadow, this dark shadow of spiritual lostness. For those of you here who don't know Jesus Christ, who haven't put faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to turn your ears to hear about this great God whom we gather to worship, to hear about this glorious grace that Paul goes on and on about. And my prayer is that you would respond to that, and that you would choose to follow this one. And so in these verses, we really see that Christians have every spiritual blessing in Christ and that God alone should receive praise for his glorious grace. This is a theme that's traced all throughout. And we see it in three movements of the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit seals. But first, we even see Paul, he starts out in verse three. If you look there again in verse three, He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He strikes this tone of praise in saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To bless God is to bring God praise. It's not blessing in the way that God would bless us as if we have anything to bring to God, but it's simply our response to what God has already provided for us. And and we see here that that he's blessed us with great abundance, it says. He says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places comes down from the hand of God in Christ. Paul is saying, he's saying that right now, the Christian has access to all spiritual blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. He's getting at this idea that, that right now, if you were a Christian, it is as if you were already in this very moment, seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.6 uses this language, that this is what God has done. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Christian gets to experience and enjoy the blessings of their right relationship to God in this earthly life. It's not just something that we wait for until Christ returns and brings us home. 
kind of in this stage of, of things already being done for us in the gospel and them not yet being done for us, we get to experience these spiritual blessings. And look at the basis of these spiritual blessings. The first one we see is that God the Father chooses. Look there in verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This communicates to us something crazy, that, that God was under no obligation to choose anyone for salvation. It communicates to us that, that God, he created humans with full knowledge of how we would go against his good design, of how we would sin against him, how we would ultimately go our own way, not honor him with our lives. And yet, even knowing all of that, before all of that happened, he still chooses that some will receive salvation in Jesus Christ. We see that that's not because of any merit that those people are gonna do. It's not because of any good works that they're gonna accomplish. It says here that this is, this is choices made before the foundation of the world. We see it's only because of God's free and gracious choice that anyone comes to Christ. We see that salvation is this work that's initiated by God himself. One writer puts it in such a helpful way. He says, the point here is that if God had not taken the initiative, no one would have his everlasting presence and life. He says, the real problem is not why he had not chosen some, but why he chose any at all. The, the good news of God's free and gracious choice, his, his choosing people for salvation, as we see in this passage, is that it gives us any hope at all of salvation. We, we would never have moved towards God. Our only hope is that he, in grace, would move towards us. And we can see in verses four through six that he has that he has chosen many for salvation. And so maybe these words make you a little uncomfortable. These words, election and choosing and predestination and all sorts of questions are coming into your mind. And I think we can really admit that there's a lot of mystery in God choosing people for salvation. How does he decide whom he will choose? How does he do this without violating human free will? all of these questions that we can raise when we hear this language. And I just want us to see that the reality is that we will never in this life have fully satisfactory answers to any of those questions that we have. That's very disappointing potentially uh, to us this morning. But I would just say that, that that being said, all throughout scripture, we see that God goes about this work of choosing people for himself. If you have kind of if you're holding this idea at kind of at arm's length, I would encourage you to just see the argument even as it's laid out. Uh, D.A. Carson, a, a theologian, he puts it well. He identifies this, this idea of God choosing. He says that at every major turning point in redemption history, God is the one who is initiating. He says God does this when he calls Abraham back in Genesis 12. He calls him out of Ur. He does this when he calls Moses out of Midian to lead his people, the Israelites, out of exile in Egypt. 
God does this when he chooses the Israelites out of all the peoples on the earth, scripture tells us, to be his people. And here we see that God chooses individuals for salvation before the foundations of the world. At each of these major stages in redemption history, God is the one initiating. He's the one driving the ship, providing direction. And in fact, we even see an instance when when humans try to, to take the reins, God responds and says, that's not exactly what I'm looking to do right now. We see David coming to God and saying, hey, I want to build a temple for you. And God says, wait just a minute, David. I've got, I actually have a plan for this, and it's going to happen in a few years. Thank you for your earnestness, but I have a plan for this. And so God is the one he's initiating. He's driving uh, the ship at each stage of redemption history. And this, I want us to see too, this is not a vision of a distant God who is cold and calculating. It's not a vision of a God who's uncaring, of a God who's unkind. It's not a a vision of this kind of divine mathematician who has all these formulas and schemes that he's following to make these decisions for salvation. The sense that we see in this passage could not be further from those ideas. We see here this picture of a, a kind God who chooses and predestines people to adoption as his children, it says. To adoption as his children. Do you hear that language? This is fatherly language. This is fatherly imagery that's meant to evoke even the sense of great care on the part of God. He does this, as the NASB translate, according to the kind intention of his will. This really kind of gives texture to our understanding of this this idea of election, this doctrine of election. It's not the workings of a cold and distant God, but rather a picture of sovereign care and delight on the part of God. And so I would just encourage you this morning, you know, if you, if you still hold this idea a bit at arm's length, and even if you don't, maybe, just preparing yourself for times when that may be the case, I would just encourage you to open yourself up to the idea that, that God's grace has, has the tendency to overflow the banks of our understanding. Th- think about that, even that, that imagery. Has the tendency to overflow the banks of our thinking, that, that God's deep and his free-flowing grace, it challenges the shallow-cut channels of our understanding. Where we might see a dilemma in the scriptures between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, between God's choice and our free will, God in his perfect, infinite wisdom sees harmony. Consider even Isaiah 55, 9, where God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Paul in Romans 11, he writes, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor. Both of these verses, they highlight the idea that we are ill-equipped to fully understand the mind of the Lord. There are many things that God does. There are many of his ways that we will never fully understand in this life. And yet we have this picture throughout the scriptures of him calling people. And so we see he works this way. And we see that that's good news for us. That if God had not moved towards us, we never would have moved towards him. And then we see, as we read on, that, that God, he, he does this work of electing, of choosing people. He does it for a purpose in this passage, it shows us, that we should be holy and blameless 
before him. God, he's not elected just for the sake of doing it. It's not simply a matter of us having a new status or having new privileges as God's people, but he's really done this for this purpose of us being holy and blameless before him, which is an idea that I think it undercuts any kind of preoccupation that we have with privilege or status as God's people. It shows us that, that to be chosen by God, to receive the gift of salvation, to respond to him in faith, it's really something that should lead to humility in our lives. It should really lead us as well to, to this ultimate posture of praise to God as we see Paul arriving at, at every step of this passage. And so this first move, that God initiates the work of salvation. It says he, he elects to holiness, he predestines to adoption, and then he accomplishes this work in and through Jesus Christ. Look there in verse seven. In seven through 10, we see that the son redeems. Verse seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The son redeems. This notion of redeeming someone was an economic term in the first century. It referred most often to freeing someone from slavery. Referred to in the Roman Empire, this practice of buying someone out of slavery that they may have had to sell themselves into. Someone in that, in that era might have been so deeply in debt. You know, maybe they tried to open a business and it comes crashing down and they have to take out loans. And before they know it, they're swimming in debt and have no way to repay it. And so the only course of action for them is that they go into uh, bond servitude to someone. And so they do that for the sake of their family so they still have a meal. But that means that they're now a, a bond servant. They're now in a form of slavery. But this idea of redeeming that person was that there was still this possibility that a friend or a family member could come along and they could put up the money that was needed to buy that person out of slavery, could buy them out of that servitude that they had submitted themselves to. Which shows us that, that here this, this notion of redemption, of, of redemption being in Christ, it gets at this reality that we, if we are Christians, we've been freed from bondage to sin been freed from bondage to sin. It shows us that we were once held captive to sin's power. It shows us that we were under sin's control. We were in slavery to sin. But now the son has redeemed us. He's come along and he's put up the cost. He's put up the money to buy us out of that slavery. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Similar language that we find here in verse 7. And in the Old Testament, this, this theme of redemption, this idea of redemption is not new. In the Old Testament, God, he redeems his chosen people from their oppression and slavery under the Egyptians. God comes along and he provides them with redemption. He appoints Moses to lead them out of their exile in Egypt. And here in verse seven, we see that we now have an even greater redemption in Jesus Christ. We see that we're freed from the clutches of an even more powerful and oppressive foe 
that foe being sin. And so what response should this evoke in us? Praise be to God. That's the natural place that we find ourselves at. Praise be to God. It's important to recognize too here in this verse the, the costly nature of this redeeming work, right? To redeem someone, you have to put up something valuable to redeem a person out of their slavery. And here it says that we're redeemed through his blood. It says that here Christ's sacrifice at the cross is what allows us to be bought out of our slavery to sin. This great liberation from our slavery to sin has come at, at the greatest price. That it's come at the shedding of Jesus Christ's own blood for us. We see at the, at the cross that, that Christ, he sheds his blood to buy us out of bondage and into the care of the Father. We see here the, the riches of God's grace have been lavished on us in Christ. That, that we, those who are unworthy sinners, have been bought out of bondage to sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Is, this is nothing short of a miracle, isn't that right? It's nothing short of a miracle that God has done this. And so what is our response to that? Praise be to God for his redeeming work. And then look, look there in verses uh, nine and 10, where Paul, he, he goes on, he kind of continues to stack incredible realities of the gospel on top of one another. And in nine through 10, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He then says that, that God makes the mystery of his will known to those whom he chooses and redeems. It shows us that, that God, he lets us in on his plan for all things. This idea, this is getting at the idea that God has this uh, cosmic plan of redemption. It, this huge scope for how he is bringing redemption to the world as a whole, how he is gonna redeem his creation to the nth degree. It gets to this idea that even in the language here that he's gonna sum up all things in Christ, that he's gonna unite all things in Jesus Christ. It's really, it's God revealing to us what has long been concealed which is this idea that history is heading somewhere. History is heading somewhere, revealing to us that the, the timeline of history is linear and it's something that leads us to the throne of Christ. We can see that even as we turn our, our Bibles over to the book of Revelation, that the, the picture at the end of all things is that those the redeemed of Christ are gathered around the throne of Christ, worshiping him into eternity. Praise be to God that he has led us in on this. What a privilege that we know how the story is gonna end. We know that Christ is going to return and he's gonna bring this about. And then finally, the, the third movement in this passage, look there in verses 11 through 14. We see that the Holy Spirit seals and assures us the Holy Spirit seals and assures us. Verse 11, we see that we are now God's possession. We belong to him if we are Christians. And with that being the case, we're set to receive an inheritance. 
We're set to be a part of God's heritage, enjoying all the benefits of what it is to be united to Christ, to belong to God. And this idea even of of us being God's possession, it's often paired with language of being chosen by God all throughout scripture. If we were to flip back to Deuteronomy 14, we would see in 14.2, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. 1 Peter 2.9, if we flipped a few pages forward, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous lights. Chosen to be God's possession. And so just as the well-to-do in Paul's time would have had a seal that they would have placed on documents, Paul is trying to communicate to us something similar about what he does in giving us his Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. These, these people who were well-to-do at that time, you know, if they were to engage in some sort of contractual relationship, they would have this seal that they could, they could sign their name to whatever document it was. They would dip it in ink and roll it across the page. And maybe it's a contract for goods, for services. Maybe it's a, a document indicating that they own a piece of land uh, outside of town. A document that's showing that they're making a purchase Whatever the case may be, the idea that's being communicated is that God is doing a similar thing. That that God is placing his divine seal on us through the Holy Spirit. That, That God, he's declaring his ownership over us. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a way of marking us out as his own possession. He says, this one belongs to me. This one has been redeemed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch over, I'm gonna sustain, I'm gonna care for this one who is mine. That's a comforting thought for us to hear, isn't it? It's a comforting thought that God does that in salvation. And in addition to the, the Holy Spirit sealing us, the Holy Spirit also serves as a, it says here, a down payment of our inheritance a down payment of our inheritance. I know that there are some of you, I've had conversations with you in in recent weeks in this room who have recently been in the housing market. Bless bless your souls for the work that you've been at for a while now. Uh, It's it's been wild out there. Uh, It's been a crazy season if you've been in the housing market. And if that is you, you've likely been kind of swimming around in in the terminology of realtors and, and what happens in, in real estate in general. Swimming around in this terminology, and you might even be familiar with this idea of earnest money. Maybe that, that phrase is familiar to you. That, that there's this idea that whenever you wanna go to buy a house, you really wanna show the seller that you're serious about possessing that house, that, you're ser- that you really do want to be the next owner of that house, and so you come to the, to the offering table and you say, I'm gonna put up this much earnest money showing you that I am serious about making this purchase, showing you that I really do want this house. And, and the numbers that I've seen for what that looks like right now are insane um, for what it looks like to actually show someone that you do want to come in and buy this house. But what's being communicated to us here is that in a similar way, 
God is putting forward his earnest money. That in a similar way, when God gives us the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's showing us that he is serious about returning for his possession. That he is serious about owning us for himself, being our father for all eternity. That he's serious about bringing us into relationship with him in eternity for all time. That's, a, that's an amazing truth for us to chew on this morning. In the gift of the Holy Spirit, God, he also gives us a taste of the fellowship that we're gonna one day have with him. He says, rest assured that you're mine. He says, enjoy the spiritual blessing of my presence now. And when I return, enjoy this in its fullest measure. And so really we see here in, in verses 11 through 14, that the sealing and the guaranteeing work of the Holy Spirit, it gives the believer confirmation. It gives the believer assurance that, that as one who is in Christ, they are one of God's beloved children. It gives them assurance that, that they are his possession, that they're under his gracious lordship and that they will be forever in eternity. It's it's astounding how naturally praise flows from those realities. How naturally praise will flow as we look to, as we reflect on these incredible gospel truths that are laid out in verses three through 14. From beginning to end, we see this picture of God sovereignly selecting, saving, and securing us. We see that he chooses, that he redeems, that he seals that he gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the call for us this morning is, is that we would respond and we would say, praise be to God for his glorious grace. Praise be to God for his glorious grace. It's what our brother Paul is doing here. And the charge is for us to do the same. And so let, my, my charge too is let this passage work on you this week. Sit with this passage, focus in on this through line of God's glorious grace to you, a sinner. Let yourself really get caught up in, get kind of swept up in the, the flood of God's grace that runs down to you. It's incredible. Let it lift your gaze, let it lead you to praise so that you will be one who praises God for his glorious grace in every moment of your life, that you will be one who, who has this woven into the fabric of your life now and into the future. Let's pray. God, we thank you. That you are not content with leaving us to wallow in our lostness. That you're not content with us being under the yoke of slavery to sin. But that you, the perfect Holy One, have chosen to act in salvation. You've chosen to initiate this work of salvation, to, to offer grace to the undeserving, Lord. 
to buy us back out of our bondage to sin, to bring us into the company of, of you, the beloved one, Lord. God, we thank you that this is how you have gone about things, Lord. God, if we are here this morning and we know you, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, our prayer, Lord, is that you would bring these lofty truths home to our hearts, God. These are big things to think on, to consider, to reflect on. God, but we pray that, that the weight of them, the gravity of them would rest on our hearts, Lord. And that it would be this kind of good and healthy weight and gravity that would drive us to humility and to praise, God. That we would truly be a people defined by bringing praise to God, bringing praise to you for your glorious grace, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this, this body that you have brought together here, Lord. We know that as we're chosen in Christ, it's not to be individual, solo, siloed Christians, God, but it's to be in the church that you have bought with your own blood, God. And so we pray that as a church, we would be defined by this same posture, God. That humility and praise would be words that come on the lips of people who talk about faithful Bible church, God. Only you can do that work through your spirit in our lives. And so we pray, we ask, we plead that you would, God, so that we might be a people who can serve as a display to the truth of the gospel, Lord. A people who can put on display for this, these cities here, Aberdeen, Pinehurst, Southern Pines, and the surrounding areas, Lord, can put on display that, that God is working in the hearts of humans, that God is redeeming people out of their lostness, out of their bondage to sin, and he is bringing them into relationship with himself, God. Let the way that we live exemplify that, God. We need your help in that, Lord. We ask that this time that we spend in Ephesians of these next months will do so much in the way of building us up to be a church like that, God. So we bring all this before you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.